1: To sports talk new york here on wgbb merrick long island new york bill donahue here taking you through the first hour in the sunday night the first day of august 2021 our engineer brian graves is with us as always right across the way got a great show coming your way tonight up first we'll talk to former mets pitcher ed lynch in the second half, we'll switch gears as we do on occasion and welcome in the great JJ French from Twisted Sister. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. We got some great memories to talk about up ahead. As always, before we begin social media, we're on Facebook. Check us out there. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, at WGBB Sports Talk. Follow me on Twitter at Bdonahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry because they're all archived out on the website. So don't no, you fret none about that. Now our first guest, he was born in Brooklyn, USA. He never possessed an overpowering fastball or devastating curve really. He relied instead on his command and his wits. The latter, it was said, was among the sharpest of their time, and it led to a second act as a baseball executive we welcome into sports talk new york tonight ed lynch ed good evening
0: hey bill how are you
1: oh, doing wonderful ed doing wonderful uh, nice weather up here on the island for uh, no humidity so we, we had a good day well that's good now right off the bat a baseball cliche right there of course uh greetings from bruce barrenny wanted me to send you his regards
0: wonderful teammate wonderful guy just a, a great guy to be around and uh i consider him a very close friend
1: right yeah good man good man now when you were growing up uh you grew up i guess in westchester then you moved to florida who were your boyhood heroes and your teams growing up
0: well you know all those years in chicago they have this this thing there where you have to choose one team or the other at birth you have to the White Sox or the Cubs. You can't root for both. Right. I, frankly, was, I rooted for the Yankees and the Mets. I watched every Yankee game on television and every Met game. I just loved watching uh, you know, Major League Baseball. I was lucky enough to have free television back then. and So, you know, Channel 11, WPIX, Yankees, right. and then the, uh, the Mets on Channel 9. Right, so, Channel I mean, 9. It, it was great. I mean, uh, I rooted for both clubs. I loved the history of the Yankees, but my favorite player was, and always will be, and I had the pleasure of playing with him, is uh, the franchise, Tom Seaver.
1: Yes, we will speak a little bit about the great one later on, uh, Ed, and your memories of him. But uh, up first, I want to talk about the trade. You you came up in the Texas organization. and uh, you Yes, was...
0: I did. I was drafted in the 22nd round out of the University of South Carolina, where my mm-hmm. college coach, ironically, was Bobby Richardson of the uh, New York Yankees. So uh, I injured my arm pretty severely my senior year. And um, I missed most of the season, came back and pitched at the end, pitched and lost a game in the College World Series, and then got drafted by the Rangers in the 22nd round. Went down to rookie ball, and then uh, the following year in 78, I went to A ball, double A, and then in 79 I went to triple A, and then at the end of that year, I was the player to be named later in the Mike Jorgensen for Willie Montanez trade yeah. and, uh, in September of 1979. I was the player to be named later, came over to the Mets and, Spring training of 1980.
1: Right. The good good old Willie Montanez. There's there's not enough mustard in New York to cover Willie, they used to say. (laughs) Now, did you play in college with Mookie? Was Mookie on your team?
0: Yes, Mookie was there by last year. He only came in for one year. I remember he was at Orangeburg Junior College, I think. And in the fall, we would play a lot of the junior colleges in the area, in the state. And I remember he came in and pitched against us. And Mookie doesn't want to admit this, but he wasn't a very good pitcher. He thinks he was dominating, but he was, uh, he was a heck of a, a, a position player. And Mookie did something that year in 1977 that I don't think, well, by the rules, they can't do it anymore. And it probably was never done before and probably will never be done again. Everybody used aluminum back then, and Mookie wanted to show the scouts that he could hit with wood. And he used a wood bat the whole year, hitting only right-handed. And now the rules preclude that. The NCAA will not let you use a wood bat right. uh, nowadays. They have a, a composite of some sort that they use. And And I remember Mookie came in, had a great year. We went to the College World Series. He had a great College World Series. He was on the first-team College World Series team that mm-hmm. year in 1977. And the Mets took him in the second round. And I remember thinking, this guy's going to get to the big leagues. Some kind of fast. And
1: yeah. He did. Yep. The rest they say is history. Mookie Wilson. There you go, folks. A gamecock along with Ed Lynch. Now, do you remember your Mets debut,
0: Ed? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, I. Uh, I believe it was my first appearance out of the bullpen as a professional. It was in uh, August uh, 30th, I think, 1980, in Candlestick Park. Right. And the first hitter I faced was Mike Ivy. Mike I threw him Ivy. a sinker down the middle. He hit a ground ball to shortstop, took a bad hop, hit Frank Tavares in the throat, bounced in foul territory. He wound up at second with a double and they, and, and Frank was on the field for like five minutes and I'm on the mound biting my fingernails. I'd throw one pitch in the big leg. A guy got a double on a ground ball to short. Our shortstop is injured and I'm sitting there a nervous wreck. Oh no. And I wound up. Pitching terribly. Yeah. So, it was not a good debut. And, and ironically, I did not pitch for 13 days, and we lost 13 consecutive games.
1: Right, that's And then right. I started
0: a game at Chase Stadium on September 13th, 1980, against the Chicago Cubs, and I won. Mm -hmm. So that was probably one of the bigger days of my career, being back in Shea Stadium, pitching and winning as a Met.
1: Right, you snapped that losing streak. That's right. We're speaking with Ed Lynch tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you were uh, with the Mets during the bad times, and and I know we spoke about that last week with the bad dude on the show, John (laughs) Stearns. And uh, he's got some stories, that guy, let me tell you. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, who were some of the luminaries? that you played with on the Mets in those days, Ed?
0: Oh, we had Elliot Maddox. We had, uh, we had Bill Allman. Yeah. We had, uh, Doug, Doug Flynn, of course, John Stearns. Um, uh, well, I played with Dave Kingman the next, starting the next year. Um, you know, just, just played with a lot of guys who were nearing the end of their career and certainly with the Mets and, you know, the Mets did just such a great job of building that club. I mean, the three ways you build a club are drafts, trades, and free agency. And, you know, the easiest way to build a club, doesn't take a lot of talent, just takes a lot of money, is to go out and sign free agents. Mm-hmm. And it's, ironically, the Mets, on that championship team, I don't believe we had a free agent on that club. No, Because if you look in the draft, we had Dell Strawberry, Roger McDowell, Randy Myers, Mookie, Wally Backman, Lenny Dykstra, Kevin Mitchell were all drafted, and then the trades were, of course, Keith, Ronnie, uh, Gary Carter, Ojeda, Hojo, Jesse, Ray Knight, Ray and Knight. Pitt. Yeah, I mean, then that's basically the club. So George Foster was the big signing. I remember in my in, in 1982 we signed George Foster. To a huge deal back then, and in those days, I think it was ten million for five years, which was astronomical money back then. That
1: was big, yeah. And
0: you know, George, George, you know, came into a bad lineup. He didn't get pitched to. He tried his best. It just didn't work out the way I think everybody planned. It certainly wasn't the fault of George. But again, the team won with with really basically no free agent players.
1: No, they they did it uh, the the good way, They really did with that team. But um, I want to go back to 81. You were at Tidewater. Just to give you an idea, folks, of, of what was happening with the Mets in those days. Ed comes up from Tidewater because Craig Swan breaks his rib when Ron Hodges is trying to throw a runner out at second base. It was Hall of Famer Tim Raines. The ball hits Craig in the rib and breaks it. How often have you seen that happen, right, Ed?
0: Well, it happens more than you think, but usually it happens in the minor leagues. But, yeah, that's the reason I got called up. I, You know, I, I had a good spring in 81. I got sent down. I got called up when Craig got hurt. Mm-hmm. Then I got sent down, like, right before the strike. And I was some kind of upset. But in retrospect, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I went down in the minor leagues for that those 60 days or 55 days. I had seven or eight starts, uh, probably more than that. And I pitched through the whole time. All the major leaguers were at home. And and then the day the strike ended, I got called up. And I pitched probably the best baseball I had in my entire career, certainly up to that point, in the big leagues. And I remember I pitched a game in Chicago, and I was facing Bill Madlock, and I threw him a fastball right down the middle to, like, a five-time batting champion. And he hit a rocket in the first base dugout. And he hadn't seen live pitching in two months. Yeah. So, or, you know The light bulb went off, but I said, all I need to do here is just throw strikes, get ahead, and then expand the zone. And I pitched very well. And the only reason was because I had pitched. I had been pitching that entire time, mm-hmm. and I was ready to go.
1: You spoke earlier, Ed, about Tom Seaver on the Mets at that point in his career. Uh, of course, they ended up losing Tom to uh, the compensation draft to the Chicago White Sox. But what was it like? Uh, with Tom on the staff during that, that point in his career, did, did you get anything from him at all?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, Tom, he led by example. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom wasn't the warm, fuzzy guy that's going to sit in your locker and pat you on the back and say, hey, kid, you know, everything's going to be fine. He was he was tough. I mean, he was a tough competitor. You know, he's a former Marine. Uh, you know, he. I remember him telling me, you know, late in the game, it's like a bar fight, you know. It's it's. It's kill or be killed, and, you know, I mean, a little bit of an exaggeration, but this guy was some kind of competitor, and I remember, you know, after he left, I'm thinking, geez, you know, he didn't have that great of a year, but if you look at the year he had, he pitched over 200 innings. His mm-hmm. ERA was pretty good, and, you know, if you do that now, you're you're probably going to be in the league lead in innings pitched, and you're going to be up there in ERA, you know, and and I, I, Bill, I'll tell you, if we did not lose Tom... I think we probably would have won the division probably in 84 and maybe even 85. Because mm-hmm. you look at his numbers when he went over to the White Sox. I think he won 16 and 15 games. And I think his 80, 85 year in uh, in Chicago was phenomenal. I mean, I think he, he won 16 games. His ERA was might have been like right around three. Yeah. And, you know, to put him on that club with Dwight Gooden, Sid Fernandez, Ron Darling, uh you know, we probably would not have made the Ojeda trade, uh, I think it would have propelled us, you know, to a division championship. And, of course, back then with no wild card, you know, we won 90 games in 84 and went home, and we won 98 games in 85 and went home. True. So I think Tom would have made the difference where we would have probably won the division and maybe even the World Series in '84 or '85.
1: If if he was in that dugout instead of the other one for for the for some championships, it would have been tremendous. Ed, and uh, how great would it have been at Shea Stadium or wherever uh, that he picked up number three hundred in a Mets uniform? Wouldn't that have been great?
0: <laughs> that would have been fabulous. Yeah. And, uh, no, he he is and will always be the franchise, in my opinion.
1: No one will ever come near him. There's a, the kids talk about Jake Jacob DeGrom. What a great pitcher he is, truly. But uh, there's there's no one like Tom Seaver. And uh, of course, we had Gooden on that staff. Ed and I, I remember you saying, you know, they put up the K's for Dwight Gooden when he strikes somebody out. They're going to put up signs saying four to three for me, right? <laughs>
0: That's right. I did yeah. say that. Yes. <laughs> that <laughs> so would have so been you good. Staff, you know, when I when I hurt my knee and I hurt my knee in spring training, I tore my uh, meniscus in my left knee. I, I kept pitching. Uh, we we started the season. I pitched like one and two thirds innings at the vet in Philadelphia, and I came in. I woke up the next day, and my knee was the size of a basketball. Oh boy! So I had to have knee surgery. Uh, I rehab, I, I, did the physical therapy, and then I went on a rehab assignment down to Tidewater. And, you know, I was a smart guy. I mean, I knew the business of baseball. I wasn't, you know, a, a high profile prospect where everybody tells me everything I want to hear. I mean, I had to slug it out on, on a daily basis to survive. So I'm down in Tidewater and I'm looking at the Met staff, and the last guy on the staff, basically their fifth starter and long man is Rick Aguilera. Mm hmm. You know, and I had just won an arbitration case the previous winter against the Mets. is making the minimum. He's a much better pitcher than I am. And I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to bring me back to New York and send him to Tidewater. He's just too good. So I knew a trade was coming. And, uh you know, and then, of course, at the end of my rehab assignment, I, I got traded to the Cubs and went from first to worst. And... You know, people say, you know, that must have been devastating. But I can tell you when I was interviewing with Andy McPhail for the GM job in Chicago, he told me he wanted someone with a Chicago connection. So if I did not get traded to the Cubs, I might not have the opportunity to be the general manager. So things worked out for me. And plus, you know, I mean, I was a big boy. Again, I I was intelligent in in terms of the business of the game. And for me to sit there in hem and haw and be shocked by a trade is just telling people I'm either stupid or naive. Yeah, you know, it's a right. race things happen. So, um, you know, I was not happy about the trade, certainly, but I understood it. And, you know, I went to Chicago and had a chance to pitch, and pitched well in the second half in 86.
1: Yeah, you really did. But, but while you were here, and we're speaking with Ed Lynch tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh, Joe Torre gets fired. George Bamberger comes in. Now, Bambi had uh, an admiration for you. He He, he, uh, he thought you were something.
0: I love George, you know. I mean, I think he appreciated guys that that could pitch. And he taught me a lot of things. He taught me the slide step. You know, he taught me uh, on certain counts what to do. You know, he said, hey, 0-2, you know, he's from Staten Island, so you had that heavy New York accent. (laughs) You know, 0-2, go and pitch about three inches outside, and they'll call a guy out now and then. And it it worked. You guys would argue like hell, but, you know. Little things like that. He was a pitching guy. I think he might have been a little bit miscast as a manager. You know, like yeah. I thought like he's one of the best pitching coaches that I, 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 think I ever had. I think Mel and him are probably the best. And he wasn't the pitching coach. He was the manager. Right. And I really had a great deal of admiration for George. And, you know, his heart wasn't really in it. And, and, you know, and we were struggling in 83 when he decided to, uh, go home and go fishing, as he said.
1: Yeah. And he did in, uh, He he was not cut out to be the manager. That's true, Ed. I agree with you there. But I want to read a quote uh, from Marty Noble, who folks will remember here as the beat guy for the Mets for Newsday. He says, Eddie did everything you had to win. He fielded his position properly. He always covered first base. He was one of the first guys I remember using the slide step, and he held runners very well. He could bunt and help himself. All those little things they talk about to help yourself, he did. And George Bamberger loved him for that, and that, that's Marty Noble from Newsday.
0: Yeah, Marty was another close friend and just a, a just a great person and a great writer. But I had to do those things, Bill. I, yeah, I just couldn't go back there and throw high fastballs and not cover the bags and let guys just run. I couldn't do that. I didn't, you know, I didn't strike people out. Number one, because I really didn't have the stuff to strike people out. Number two, I didn't try to strike people out. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to. You know, back then we were taught pitch to contact. You know, throw quality pitches in the strike zone to get them to put the ball in play on the ground.
1: Right, and that's what I did. I there's nine guys with attack. gloves out there, right? So that's yeah, what they're. You know, for. we
0: had a good defensive club, and you know, and, and, and guys love fielding behind me. I remember other pitcher would say, geez, you're so lucky." They play good defense behind you. I said, you know why? Because I work fast. They throw strikes. They're on their toes the whole game. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're out there telling ball one, ball two, ball three, bam, there's a hard ground ball. It surprises everybody. And they yeah. Know, and they don't make the plays that they make if it's like they're, they're ready to go every pitch. So I was proud of the fact that I made guys put the ball in play. I didn't walk anybody. And, you know, I had a real good slide step. I think I went a whole year without anybody stealing a base and, uh, and that was an accomplishment in the mid-'80s when everybody used to run all the time.
1: Oh, yeah. The stolen base was a thing in baseball at one time, kids. <laughs> it's not what it is today. Now, I want to talk, Eddie, about uh, the situation with Mariano Duncan and Pedro uh, Guerrero. Now, they were giving you a hard time, and uh, you struck out Mariano Duncan with a fastball, and you you give him a little of the business, and uh, he starts coming out after you, Right.
0: Yes he did. I'll tell you what happened. His first at bat, he took a full swing, hit the ball off the end of the bat, right back to the mound. It was like a changeup coming back at me, and I I was off balance and the ball wasn't hit as hard as I thought. It hit me in the heel of my glove. I picked it up, dropped it, picked it up, threw him out at first by a step. He thought I held the ball, made him run all the way down the line, and then threw him out.
1: So ah. he comes by
0: the mound, cursing me out. Yeah. And I'm like, what was that all about? And for the next six innings, him and Lasorda, God rest his soul, are on the top step yelling at me for six innings. <laughs> so finally in the sixth inning, I strike him out. He's walking back to the dugout. I said a couple of choice things to him about his heritage and his family. <laughs> yeah. And and he stops, turns around, and charges them out. And as soon as he started charging them out, I started charging him. Wow. And, and Ray Knight got in between the two of us, and now I'm pushing Ray Knight and Mariano Duncan back towards the Dodger dugout. And yeah. so there's a big scrum and you know there's you know, there's players in a circle. And that night I went out with a former teammate and we're sitting and having dinner in a sports bar and and the highlights come on T V and I see Guerrero circling around the pile and then he jumps over the top and hits me in the back of the head. A sucker pun. <laughs> and I didn't even realize it. So I'm feeling my head at dinner and I got a lump on my head and I said, that's no good you don't want Yeah, right. So I was not a big Pedro Guerrero fan. No, I mean, Duncan. We laugh about it later, but Pedro, I just you know he was such a good hitter, and I used to throw balls at his neck all the time. And yeah, you know, he didn't like me, and I didn't like him. So, well, Keith, Keith wrote.
1: Keith wrote in his book that uh, Eddie would have fought him. You know, he said he would have fought him gladly if Ray Knight didn't intervene.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean. Well, God, the guy was like 5'10", 160 pounds, you know, and we laughed about it later. I, I He was a coach in the Dodgers system, and I ran into him when I was scouting. I said, how much did you weigh back then? He goes, 160. And we both had a good laugh on that one.
1: And but, uh, how about the time with Keith Moreland when you hit Keith Moreland in the back, and uh, everybody yeah, well, came that, out,
0: right? Yeah, well, that was, a, that was, that was I'll take responsibility for that one. You know, we were getting our ass handed to us. You know, we had a double header there. Uh, in August, and we were—I we, think we were like a game and a half out when we went in there, and we just got pounded. And I, if you look at Ron Darling, he's pitched Game One. I'm in the—I'm in the clubhouse. I'm going to pitch Game Two, and I'm sitting there, and I hear the crowd roaring, and players are coming in saying the wind's howling straight out. Oh man! Ronnie comes in in like the fifth inning, and he's almost in tears. I mean, I think that might have been one of the worst outings that Ron Darling ever had. He didn't have many. If you look at his line score, I think he was two and a third, eight hits, eight runs, something oh, like that. Man. So I go out for game two, and that crowd is going berserk. And, you know, I get him out for three innings, and then there's base hit. Somebody makes an error. Then there's a double, and I said, okay, that's enough of it, you know. And so here comes Keith Morland. And Junior Ortiz is catching, and Junior told me later, you know, if you're a catcher, you're looking at the guy's feet and you're looking up to make sure he's not peeking before you give a sign. Right. And he said he went to give a sign and looks out, and I'm already halfway through my windup, and he goes, uh oh. And, uh, you know, and I just, I hit him right in the rear end. And then he came out, you know, I was going to win a split decision, I was going to stick and move and. He came in and hit me low with that University of Texas linebacker move, and (laughs) we all went down in a huge pile. It's like when you're a kid and all your friends are piling on, you're at the bottom going, get off. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, you know, the amazing thing about those days is we had this huge fight. The crowd was uh, frenzied. Everybody separates. The the field looks like a yard sale. There's there's hats and mitts and shoes (laughs) everywhere. Somebody hands me Terry Leach's hat. I think he had like a 6-6, six and 7-8 six, uh, head. Mine's like an 8. Yeah. So I got his hat on. <laughs> I got his hat on. It looked like a bobblehead. <laughs> and I'm starting to – and I stayed in the game. I faced the next hitter, and Keith Moreland's on first base. Yeah. Neither one of us got thrown out of the game.
1: That's amazing.
0: And that's what – yeah, you know what? And we handled it back then. We handled it ourselves. I think there's a bit of a problem now when – Somebody gets hit and they've worn both sides, and you can't retaliate. So, you know, uh, I think Lee Smith came in later in that game or the next day and hit somebody right in the middle of the back. And you know, and I and I said, "Hey, my bad. I, uh, I'm the reason they did that." So, yeah, right. Okay, we're even, and that was the end of it. You know. Yeah. So uh, it was a different time back then. The game was certainly played a different way back then, but.
1: Yeah, nobody you know, nobody about, pounded their chest for getting a base hit. nobody nobody flipped a bat. Uh, you know, there was none of that garbage. No, no uh, equipment or whatever that you want to call it in the dugout when you hit a home run. They don't put a medallion around your neck. You know, <laughs> yeah, was,
0: and you know what? If, if you're 50 games out in September and you win a walk off game, they're not throwing gator. We're not throwing <laughs> gatorade around and yeah. ripping uniforms off. You know, yeah. I mean. I don't understand the celebrations when you're 50 games out of first base uh, place in September and you win a walk off game. It's like you just won the World Series.
1: Yeah, uh, but
0: you know, uh, you know, the guys are it, people. The game was played differently in the 50s than it was when I played in the 80s, and it's played differently now than it was then. It doesn't mean it's bad, better, or worse. It's just different.
1: That's the game. That's it, Ed. You're exactly right, Ed Lynch, with us tonight. Now, at uh, 86, you left as we said. Uh, you were dealt early. But Frank Cashin made sure you got a ring, correct?
0: Yes, he did. Nice. And uh, one of nice. the reasons for that was, and I knew this was coming, and the media, God bless them, you know, their job is to, to write, and, you know, stories. And a couple of the writers approached me and wanted me to say something bad about Frank or the mess because I got traded and I refused to do it. And I just said, this is a quality organization. I understand the trade. I mean, I'm dying inside, but I'm not going to come out and criticize the Mets, you know, they're in first place by 25 games, I'm, held a, I'm going to make my opinion known that I think it's a bad trade, that right. I look like an idiot, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I said all the right things, and I just walked out of the clubhouse, kept my, my mouth shut, and then went home and cried, Yeah. So, <laughs> and I think Frank appreciated that, and, uh, you know, I was surprised at the number of guys that did not get rings, exactly, I
1: saw, I saw that too, Ed, yeah, that was, that was surprising uh considering the way they throw money around but uh I'm glad you got one now now the success of the GM the the GM role you had with the Cubs you were there during the Sammy Sosa home run days you did have some good success out in Chicago for sure
0: oh yeah it was uh, 98 you know we had a good year in 95 okay in 96 terrible 97 we had a great year in 98 got to the postseason you know, at that time Sammy Sosa was the most famous athlete in the world. Yeah. So usually it's a you know, a Formula One driver or a soccer player. But Sammy was big everywhere. I mean, I, I went to South America with him, to Venezuela, and it was like the president of the United States coming in there. I mean, it was just unbelievable his reception. And you know, during that period of time, we would have Sammy would have to sit down before the game with in a in a big room. If we're on the road we go into a big big room we had a little room in chicago with a pack in a hundred people but he did that every single day before and after the game answered all the same questions every day with a smile he just loved it Mm -hmm. he loved the attention he loved the fact that he was on center stage he loved the, the fact that he was it was he was under pressure to perform this is the way sammy was sammy was a superstar then you had Mark McGuire in St. Louis and the guys there told me they're PR people that it was like pulling teeth. He hated it. Yeah. You know, he just didn't want to get up and talk about it. He just wanted to be left alone. But Sammy relished it. You know, and, and you know, it was it was a phenomenal year. You know, we had Kerry Wood come up, he strikes out twenty guys in his his fifth start. Yeah. Uh, it was just a phenomenal year. Then we had that one game playoff and uh in in Chicago against the Giants and we won the game and and uh, it just was a phenomenal year and Sammy Sammy was phenomenal. You know, he he had a stretch there of three years where he basically averaged 60 home runs and 150 RBIs. Sure. For three straight years. Averaged. Yeah. So um you know obviously there were other you know it was it, it's big uh, ordained the the steroid era which is certainly true but Again, putting up those kinds of numbers was phenomenal, and he was sure he was, was huge.
1: They'll they'll have to deal with that uh, down the road. The Hall of Fame but with guys like McGuire, Clemens, Sammy, they're going to have to deal with it because uh, that was the era. That's what happened then. It, you got to face it. You know that's that's the way I think about it, Ed. Anyway, and uh, I'd like to thank you, Ed, for stopping by tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, love to hear the stories love your sense of humor i thank you for taking time out of your sunday night to spend it with us back here in new york and we wish you all the best ed
0: well thanks very much i just want to publicly congratulate ron darling and in his induction into the uh, Mets hall of fame yesterday very well deserved i, I sent him a text that said ronnie you- you're a better person you were a pitcher and you were a hell of a pitcher and i'm proud to call you a friend nice. and i really am and him and keith are two of my closest friends and and, uh, and I'm proud of the fact that I got a chance to, to play with those guys and, and that we are friends. So and but uh, thanks a lot, Bill. I really and appreciate we're
1: it. We're fortunate here in New York, Ed, that we get to hear them every night, too. That, that, that's a pleasure for us.
0: And there's nobody better, I'll tell you that.
1: No, good booth, that's for sure. Thanks again, Ed.
0: Okay, anytime.
1: That's Ed Lynch, ladies and gentlemen. Now, up next on Sports Talk New York, we're going to switch gears, as I said, and we'll welcome in J.J. French from Twisted Sister. So stay with us, folks.
2: You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks,
1: we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB from beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. I hope you're happy with your team's actions at the trade deadline this week. Interesting to see how it all plays out in the second half. I don't think we can complain so far, though. And as I said right now, we're switching gears, as is our want on occasion. Many of you remember the club scene on Long Island when you could head out and see any number of live acts on the island and pick up Good Times Magazine and see where the Rats, Zebra, Stanton, or Twisted Sister were going to play. We're going to relive those days now, keep the memories rolling along with our next guest, guitarist, manager, record producer, and founding member of Twisted Sister. He's a columnist, author, and motivational speaker who oversees the licensing and intellectual property rights for the Twisted Sister brand. He has a new book coming out in September written with Steve Farber. It's titled Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight J.J. French. J.J., good evening.
2: Hey, Bill, thank you. Thank you for always thinking of me, by the way. Uh, You know, I really appreciate it.
1: No worries. It's great to have you aboard, uh, J.J. I want to talk to you quickly about your mom. She was a political consultant in New York, worked for uh, JFK during his campaign. And your mom, she also ran the successful election campaign for Constance Baker Motley, the first African-American woman in the New York Senate.
2: Yes, that's right. She was the campaign manager for Constance Baker Motley, and she was also the campaign manager or main consultant for Bill Ryan, uh, uh, Senator Minority Leader Manfred Ornstein, Assemblyman Albert Blumenthal, Assemblyman Bentley Casals, Congressman Ted Weiss, uh, City Council President Paul O'Dwyer. Uh, This was was New York in the 60s, Mm -hmm. and she was in the middle of it
1: outstanding what what a great resume what fantastic names uh that you mentioned there and now you you were a civil rights activist y in, in your own right uh an anti vietnam war guy you you attended the Shaker Village Summer Program and you were a bunkmate of Ben Cheney. People may may not recognize that name. He's the brother of James Cheney, one of the three civil rights workers who died on a voting registration drive. That was the movie Mississippi Burning. If you could remember that, tell us a little bit about that, JJ.
2: Um, you know that was very much a product of the times. I am <coughs> I just turned sixty nine, so I was. You know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old during that period of time it was a time of activism. Uh, people talk about how things are now. Things back then were uh, much different, uh, in better and worse ways. Um, segregation was still uh, horrible, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the South was really just coming out of the um, the the the, the uh, basic apartheid mentality of how they treated African Americans down south. Whites only. Water fountains, I mean, we've seen it in the Green Book, for example, you know, there's so much history out there. But my parents were New Yorkers, they were, they were activists, they were, they were, um, there was a, there was a generation of New York Jewish activists, uh, and I was the son of one of them, Mm -hmm. or two of them rather, and so there was a community of them, uh, of us, and there was a community of camps that we all went to, summer camps that we all went to as kids, which by the way, there were no indoctrinations. There's nothing that says that, that we got to these camps that we were doing anything more than what you normally do with, you know, at camp. You do all the projects that you do. It. But the people that you met in the camp, the kids that you met, were very much like-minded kids. And in this particular case, uh, James Cheney was one of the civil rights workers who was killed along with uh, Michael Schwerner mm-hmm. and, and, and Goodman. And uh, and his brother, uh, Ben, was, was my bunkmate. So it always seemed to be... That we were enveloped in the political uh, headlines of the times.
1: Right, for sure. Now, you grew up in Manhattan, JJ. What planted the seeds uh, in your musical interest? Who were your first influences? A lot of guys come on and say that it was uh, like Liberty DeVito seeing Ringo Starr on a Sunday night on The Ed Sullivan Show. Who first yeah, influenced you?
2: Yeah, that is, of course, the the cliché of hundreds of thousands of musicians, which, by the way, there's a cliché for a reason. We saw the stuff on Ed Sullivan, we freaked out. But my my uh, love for pop music came in a bit earlier than that, about um, seven months earlier, as a matter of fact, it was in February of 1963. The Beatles basically hit uh, in, in, in February of but I Want to Hold Your Hand, I believe was on the radio at the last day of 1963, after the Kennedy assassination, but in, um, in February of '63, I was homesick, and my mother gave me a tabletop radio, and I had no idea what to listen to. And I was through the dial, and I hit WABC AM. Now, Bill, do you oh, remember yeah. WABC? That was, oh, of course, year.
1: yeah. That, that was the blowtorch for pop music on yeah, in the blowtorch. in the area. Yeah. To put
2: that in pers- put that in perspective for people. Back in those days, even though you had other radio stations like MCA and INS, they only had five thousand watt transmitters. WABC had a fifty thousand watt transmitter which yeah. covered nine states
1: uh-huh. and if
2: you were number one on abc you were basically number one in the nation i mean that's really what it came down to the program director rick sklar is legendary yeah and he made and broke careers and so what happened was i turned on the radio one day and i'm and they're talking about the countdown and i'm you know 10 years old going what's a countdown well, i don't understand and they start going you know, 10 9 8 7 6 and they get to the number one song which was hey paula by Paul and Paul, a rather innocuous kind of doo y fifties-ish sounding single, uh, but that was number one. And I asked my mother, "What did that mean? You know, well, I don't understand. What is number one?" And she goes, "I don't, I don't know. You know, she's not paying any attention to this stuff." And number two was The Four Seasons, and number three was Skeeter Davis, and number four was uh, well, um, was Kay Winding. And it was a weird combination of music. And and uh, and and what happened was, I was infatuated by this chart, like number one, and the next week. The chart happened and the song stayed number one. Uh, hey, Paula, and the next week the song stayed number one. And after four weeks, I said to my mom, you know, what's up with this number one business? Did you vote for it? I mean, how do you, who picks it? I thought it was the world voted. I really thought the yeah. world voted every week. Uh, and she's looking at me like I got two heads, you know. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. So somewhere around the sixth week, I said to her, I think you got to buy a record. And is there a record store around here? And she said, yeah, there's one on, uh, in the neighborhood. So we go to the record store. And I'll never forget this, Bill, because really, this is really this is really what did it. Okay, you want to talk about my ground zero? Here's my ground zero. Okay. I walk into this record store. I'm 10 years old. i would never been in a record store. It's a musty, dusty old record store with some record albums in the front. But, you know, in those days, most people bought 45. Right. Or singles, not that many. It wasn't an album-oriented rock yet. And I walk in and like there's all the charts from the radio station, the official charts. And I'm kind of like, oh my god, look, it's really it's WABC. It's the the Bruce Morrow, Dan Ingram, Scott Muni, all these jocks. And I'm freaking out. And I and I said to the woman, if I buy Hey Paul, I said, how much is it? She goes forty nine cents. Nice. And they go, if I buy it, will it go back up to number one? Yeah. <laughs> like, think about how innocent that is. Sure. You know? Like. She doesn't want to say to me, listen, idiot, it's payola. Don't you understand the Mom? I mean, you know, she looks at me and she says these words. She goes, maybe, son, you yeah, know, maybe. She gave me hope, you know. Yeah. So I bought the single and I became infatuated by hit radio. And, of course, then, of course, a whole bunch of events occur in the next several months. One of them was Kennedy was assassinated, which, of course, demoralized an entire generation of young people. Right. And then, lo and behold, seven weeks later, Beatles come on Ed Sullivan, and yes, Liberty DeVito, along with Tom Petty, along with God knows how many others you want to list, all in the same age. We all saw the Beatles on TV. You know, in those days, Bill, when Ed Sullivan's show was on, 70 million people were watching one show. Right. Ed Sullivan, not like today, where you got like 800 channels, and yeah, maybe, maybe a million people watching a show. Back in those days, 70, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 73 million people watched that show that day. And of course... 69 million of them started started bands.
1: Yeah. So, right.
2: So that's that that's really is true. And then I said I want to be a rock star and I had no idea what it meant. I really didn't know what it meant. It sounded good. You yeah. know. I said to, I said to my mom that's what I want to be. You know, I think I want to do that. You know, I, I don't want to get into politics because Kennedy was assassinated. I don't want to get into jewelry business because my father had a friend who was gunned down and brought a daylight, a jeweler, and I said, that's dangerous. Right. I see the Beatles with girls and freaking out and rock and roll. I like, that looks pretty good.
1: How can you lose? Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) I'll
2: take take door number three. Exactly. Beatles, great. So uh, I think, though, Bill, the truth is, if somebody tapped me on the shoulder at that very moment, and I think about this frequently. You know, uh, if someone tapped me on the shoulder at that very moment that I'm watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and said to me, okay, John, okay, J.J., you are going to be a rock and roll musician and you're going to be famous and you're going to have a gold record, but it's going to be 20 years and six months from today, which it was. 20 years, six months later, Stay Hungry Goes Gold, I may have heard that voice go, 20 years and six months, are yeah. you out of your Mind. Yeah, right. And, and probably like, you know, the beauty of life, as we know, is not knowing.
1: Exactly. We're, we're, so that's
2: how the pursuit starts.
1: We are speaking to JJ French tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, in 72, JJ auditioned for an early version of Wicked Lester. Now, the Kiss Army out there is going to know Wicked Lester was a band that featured Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, I was, uh, I live in Manhattan. I was babysitting for a lawyer in my building who happened to be a music industry attorney who noticed that, um, he could hear me play guitar out of my window on on the Upper West Side. And one day he said to me while I was babysitting his daughter, he said, by the way, um, uh, are you looking for a band? And I went, yeah, I am looking for a band. I was transitioning from like being a Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers freak to like a glittery, glammy kind of thing. But I wasn't quite sure where I was fitting in. Uh-huh. And he said, well, I, I represent a lawyer. I represent a producer, rather, who produced a band called Wicked Lester, and they have an album deal. Are you interested in possibly auditioning for them? I went, sure. So that led to a phone call between me and Gene or me and Paul, I don't remember so long ago. But they said, okay... Oh, uh, we'd like to see you play and I said, Well, I'm playing this coming Sunday down in the village at a church with a band called Scouts that was just doing a show, it happened to be at a church on Sixth Avenue and Twelfth Street. Mm-hmm. And they came down and they uh, you know, they, they and we talked and they told me, you know, they you know, they said, Look, we have this band called Wicked Lester, but it's it's really uh, they sound like the band Looking Glass. Do you remember that song Brandy, sure, or Brandy yeah. You know? <laughs> and they specifically said And he said, look, we'll give you a tape of it, but but the band sounds like Looking Glass, and we're not going to sound like that. Yeah. We want to change into something really different, like really heavy. And they asked me if I knew who Slade was. Mm -hmm. And I had heard of Slade, but I hadn't heard Slade. Okay. So I didn't realize the reference. And, you know, Slade, um, you know, it was a very British, loud, heavy, very anthem-oriented, heavy rock. Yes. With a great singer, Naughty Holder. And, and and that's what, you know, Gene and Paul had that vision. You know, they saw themselves as this kind of heavy, heavy, heavy rock band. Uh, I don't know the words heavy metal were used back in those days, but, you know, they envisioned martial amplifiers and stuff. Like, and people need to understand this. Musicians need to understand. Back in 72, the only people that played martial amplifiers were British acts. American bands were still playing Fenders and Sun Amps and Music Man and Vox. But the British bands like Cream were playing Marshall's, and and Jimi Hendrix uh, picked up Marshall's, so they kind of denoted a heaviness, you know, a really loud, real heavy kind of sound, and uh, and so I kind of rehearsed with them for a while, and then and then we then they didn't call me back, and I went okay, you know, yeah. that that's there goes that shot, and that's kind of basically what happened. They just didn't get back to me, and then comes the following September, they were still advertising in in the Village Voice. Yeah. And I answered an ad in the voice, and it was Gene again, and he said, Oh, hey, yeah, so we got a guy. His name is Paul. And if you want to come down and check him out, fine. So about a month after that, sometime around October 72, they invited me to the loft on 23rd Street, which is legendary in Kiss stories, but mm-hmm. I went down to the loft. And um, at that point, Ace, I, I believe they had just painted the backdrop the very first time, the very first Kiss backdrop was just kind of like a bedsheet, painted behind a bunch of Marshall amps, and they played all the songs. from look at Lester, except Kissified. In other words, heavy. Yeah. With Marshalls, and and Ace. I sat there and looked at Ace and went, "Wow, that's why you picked Ace. He was a great player. You know, mm-hmm. you could just tell he had what he had. I I wasn't good enough at that point, and I I have no, I have no problem in admitting it. It is what it is. I just wasn't. I didn't have my chops together yet. Right. And Ace was the perfect guy. For
1: them. Yeah, it kind of worked out with Ace. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no,
2: no. It did. It did. He was the perfect guy for the band. Look, I think they yeah. probably auditioned 10 guitar players. I, I, I don't, I, I'm i sure they, you know, I, I don't know the other ones, but I'm sure they went to a bunch of them. Right. I, on the other hand, that summer went down to a hippie commune in Wilkes Barre, Pennsylvania, and spent my summer jamming with an Allman Brothers cover band, and uh, came back to New York, and we played one show, and the band broke up, and that's when all of a sudden everything changed. September of 72. Everything changed. Uh, Space Oddity was the number one single. All of a sudden, Bowie was absolutely everywhere. T Rex was absolutely everywhere. Glam came flooding in, and uh, it was basically like got basically got like, get into a glam band and you got nothing. And that's that was a very pivotal time frame.
1: Right, you you went from whipping post to Starman. In one yeah. summer, yeah. <laughs> and then... Yeah, well,
2: like like basically overnight. Um, yeah. You're, Bill, you're 100% correct. I got I got three albums in the mail with a subscription to Fusion Magazine. I got um, Hunky Dory, Transformer, and Mott the Hoople's Mott, you know, all the young dudes. Right. And all of them have Bowie involved with Mick Ronson, because Mick Ronson and David Bowie produced A Walk on the Wild Side and produced the Blue Reads Transformer. They wrote, Bowie wrote All the Young Dudes. And they produced and sang on it. And, of course, Ziggy was Ziggy. And it changed Mm -hmm. everything. So what I say is the Beatles were my Saturn V rocket, and Bowie was my second stage. Gotcha. Bowie took me to the next level of my dreams.
1: Now, you joined a New Jersey-based glitter band called Silver Star. And then those guys, you guys, changed the name in 73 to Twisted Sister. Now, the evolution in members joining Twisted Sister. Give us a little background on that.
2: Well, this is all excerpts from my book. First of all, which mm-hmm. I thank you for mentioning, Twisted Business, which is coming out September twenty first on Rosetta Books. Right. And um, and uh, um, if you go to um, uh, probably TwistedSister.com, dot com, among many sites, will have information on how you can pre order if you want to pre order the book. But the book is uh, pre orders are going to start. Uh, being filled shortly, Um, and I'm really excited about the book. But the book is finally, it's a 50-year his work. It's a history of my life. It's a bizwar. I call it a bizwar. What's a bizwar? It's a memoir and a business book rolled into one because you can't separate the two.
0: Right. Um,
2: At least in my case, you can't because I'm a business person that became a rock musician um, or a rock musician that became a business person. But either way, uh, all of my history of the business gets wrapped up into the life of twisted sisters so what happens is that i tell the story chronologically and explain what happened with all the band members. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation, you could go to the bars and see, you know, Rat race or the Good Rats or Baby or, you know, whatever, or Zebra and Us. Right. And what happened was, um, if you remember correctly, the drinking age was 18 in those days.
1: Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah.
2: So <laughs> so when the drinking age is 18, the bars are gigantic because there's thousands of kids. Because if you're 18 and you can drink, imagine all the phony proof at the age of 15.
1: Exactly, I, I yeah.
2: I don't imagine that there's a thing called shop class anymore in school, but you know what shop class was? It was like printing and all sorts of stuff, and you could probably make fake ID at shop class. Everybody did. So you had thousands of clubs, and these clubs were gigantic. I mean, in '73, when we started playing Long, we started really playing Long Island. We started at the Mad Hatter out in the Hamptons, and then the Mad Hatter in Stony Brook, and right. uh, uh, you had. Uh, Hammerheads in Levittown, Speak, you had, you had uh, Max's and Wontaw. The, the clubs quickly went from 200-seaters to 500-seaters to 700-seaters to 2,000-seaters. You know, like Speaks was 2,000.
1: Big clubs yeah. All,
2: and ultimately, Hammerheads in Iceland was, was 3,000. And all along the way, as this evolved, as the story is also in the Twisted Sister documentary, We're Twisted Effing Sister, which is available still on Amazon, I believe um it takes you through all the changes you know it took for a look took a long 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 time it took 10 solid years of woodshedding in the bars to learn how to be good and uh to learn the lessons of how to survive in the heavy metal in the world of, of, of the music business which is a cesspool you know yeah. uh, as you know uh, people always talk about it i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and um and uh and it's just, it's an evolution. So, yes, the band went through multiple changes. So, depending on what year someone saw Twisted Sister, they saw us with all different kinds of people. I'm the only consistent member from the beginning.
1: Okay. Uh, what were your favorite clubs in New York and Long Island to play, JJ?
2: Um, you know, I have to say that my favorite club was Speaks in Island Park, probably. Yeah. It just had a vibe. It wasn't the biggest, but it had a vibe. That was great. The Mad Hatter of Stony Brook had a vibe. Um, the Mad Hatter and the Hamptons only because we spent so much time out there. You know, our first year we spent 15 straight weeks playing there. It was 105 nights from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That was crazy. That was a trial by fire. Wow. That was really insane, living out there and playing out there That with that much consistency. But I tell people, if you want to be good, you got to be consistent. You have to just do it night after night after night. And as you know... Back in those days, you could do that. You can't do that anymore because there's very few bars. Right now, and bands can't have a hard time finding gigs. Putting COVID aside, it's just more, much more difficult as a band to learn how, your craft because there's so few places that you can actually you know, play. But I would say that, in, in, for me, Speaks in Island Park was always a favorite of mine, and the Manhattan Stony Brook was always a favorite of mine. Hammerheads in Islip became a favorite because it was so big. Then you had the Glen Island Casino on the island of Glen Island, which is off of Westchester. Right. That held 3,300 yeah. people. You had the Soap Factory in Jersey held 3,000 people. You had uh, the Fountain Casino in New Jersey held 5,000 people. Now, you know as well as I do, that doesn't exist anymore. Nope. That world doesn't exist anymore. So when I meet young musicians and I talk to them about it, it's like I i it, it almost sound like you know, it's, it's like prehistoric times. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like. You know, when we started, gasoline was $0.23 cents a gallon. That's how old the band is. Right, you know yeah. When we started, Nixon was president. You have to keep that in mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a, a long time ago. Um, so everything was so different. However, as different as it is, there's still a different way to make it these days. You just have to find you know, you know, have to find your pathway. But, yeah. but as far as bars are concerned, I would say, Bill, that if you asked, a hundred of our fans in the history of Long Island. What's the favorite place to see the band? They would tell you either Speak's, or Stony Brook, Mad Hatter, or Hammerhead.
1: Okay, more than yeah. likely. All, all legendary clubs, JJ, for sure. Yeah. Now, Who are your favorite bands to play with on the island or watch? I know I spoke with Roger Earle from Foghat who lives up in the Setauket area. He used to like to go over to Tui's to see Stanton Anderson. A- any favorite well, bands that are from the island back in those days?
2: Well, the, the big four, the big four were Stanton, Rat Race, Twisted and Zebra. That yeah. was the big four. Mm-hmm. And the good rats are not in that not because they're not part of a big five but because they were they were more national at that point
1: yeah they were and
2: they didn't spend all their time in the island they were actually a very popular college act that could play on the in the east coast because they had albums out. you know they were the first band with all original stuff so they kind of preceded us but they could always go to speaks and sell speaks out Mm -hmm. and they could sell hammerheads out there was no question they just weren't around as often but I loved the Good Rats we were very close with the Good Rats Joe Franco from the Good Rats became one of our drummers for a while. Yes, he did. Um, yeah. twist, twisted, Twisted, and, and the Good Rats played uh, together at the OBI East in the summer of 1975 in a really crazy summer in which um, both of us got fired. The lack of being able to draw people, that was more weather-related than it was band-related, but Joe Franco and I always laugh about it because it's such an insane story, and maybe <laughs> one day they'll, when you have more time, we'll get into why it was so crazy, but it was crazy. But I love the Good Rats. I, I used to go on stage when they played, and I loved them zebra of course i have a kinship with randy uh, i love them they were brought up from new orleans specifically to try to knock us out that's what hammerhead uh, the owner of hammerhead has brought up we go, oh, got a band that's going to be able to blow twisted away and they brought <laughs> up zebra and that was so there was always a great rivalry between uh, us and zebra um, rat race i always admired rat race they were an excellent group and of course stan Anderson. they basically had the country you know, if you think about it we weren't called tribute bands in those days but in a way these bands specialize in specific kinds of music. So Stanton right. specialized in Southern rock. Rat Race specialized in progressive rock. Zebra specialized in Zeppelin. And we were this strange, weird hybrid of, you know, metal and, you know, we were like ACDC, we were like Judas Priest, we were Van Halen, um, we were Ozzy, we were Sabbath, we were Rainbow, and we were Twisted. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, we were uh, you know we were a conglomeration of all these parts that eventually evolved into an original act.
1: We're speaking with J. J. French tonight on the show. Now there was a uh, preceding Hammerheads, J. At that location in West Islip, there were several other clubs. I think it was Chevy's uh, Key Largo, and I, and then it was Bogarts. I think a discotheque. Now I used to work with a guy who was an SMF. And he, he used to say, the guy said, if you bring us the beef from Bogarts, we'll burn it on stage. <laughs> Do you remember that at all?
2: <laughs> no. I mean, You know, it's interesting you mentioned Chevys. Didn't Chevys come after Hammerheads? It might uh, have. It, yeah, it might I have. I thought Chevys came after Hammerheads closed. The other was no. But, you know, we, were got, we had a reputation of, like, destroying discos. And it wasn't that we destroyed discos. It was the owners of the discos decided they wanted to become a rock club. And so they would say the twisted yo, tell your fans to come and bring albums and posters, and we'll smash them up and stuff. You know, so we <laughs> did a death to disco thing for a while, and um, and you know there was a real cultural shift. People don't understand it, but do you remember Bill a club called Uncle Sam's on One Ten?
1: Sure, Levittown. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think. Well, it was in. I think it was in, uh, Okay, so Uncle Sam's. Uncle yeah, Sam's was, was, was well, spit
1: in the uh, back.
2: Yeah, it was spit. Yes. That yeah. Was the point. The rockers had to go through a door called Spit, and the disco keep kids went through the front door because they were cleaned up and with uh, with suits on. Uncle Sam, yeah. And it became a real culture war between that because some clubs went, "Ooh, I don't want people wearing t shirts and jeans." That's why I played disco because they look they're more civilized, looking with suits and stuff. And the rock clubs were like, "Screw that," you know. So if you remember Beggars Opera in Queens, right? So Beggars Opera um, had a different name, and and they. Um, they uh they were they, they wanted to transition to rock but the owner didn't like didn't like uh, our kind of fans you know which are you know t-shirts and ripped jeans and yeah. sneakers and so he told our agent Kevin Brett I don't know I don't want him in my room I don't like the way their fans are dressed it's kind of ludicrous now yeah, if you right. think about it okay so apparently he showed up at speaks one night and there's 2000 kids at speaks and Phil the you know standing at the bar and the guy walks up to Phil the and he goes and and Phil goes, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm checking Twisted out. I'm deciding whether or not I want to put him in my room. So the story goes, Phil goes, well, what's the problem? And the guy goes, well, I don't like the way that the people dress. And Philly goes, you, you, you know what you're looking at? Thursday night, 2,000 people. Are you out of your mind?
1: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> like, what are you thinking? <laughs> what kind of dumb logic is that? And uh, the guy then, you know, he hired us. So uh, so that shows you the whole thing. That's what happened. It was a real culture shift between the rockers and the disco people. And and Speaks was Speakeasy. It was a disco. Then it was Speaks. And then it went back to uh, something had another name for a while. And they kept shifting back and forth. And Lamore in Brooklyn, by the way, I don't want to leave Lamore out. Because oh, a lot of our yeah, fans went right. to Lamar in Brooklyn. And L'Amour is a very important club in the history of Twisted Sister because it was the first club to really transition into a real, legitimate, original metal club. You know, all the rest of them were bars, but, but L'Amour was a real, legitimate... You know, they they had Metallica. You know, they had... Yeah. They, they, they brought the... Everything evolved. And Motorhead played there. And, you know, you, you name it, Anthrax. that was great. Anyway, L'Amour was a disco, and then it switched to, to metal. So there was a crazy time period when things shifted over and then disco kind of died really quick like really quick kind of vanished off the face of the earth and at that point um interestingly enough you know AC/DC, Judas priest really hit their stride yeah. and that's when i think our version of metal really started to become preeminent.
1: jj we got to run can you come back and talk to us when you come come back home again
2: uh you know what i'm going away for a while I'm taking a vacation but uh I just want to thank you for having me on. I want to thank you for your support because you you, con- you contact me. It's great. Let's go Mets. By the way, I yes, I watch them all the time. Uh, you know, my heart will always bleed orange and blue. Always. I
1: will. Uh, I will stay in touch with you, JJ, and we'll try to hook up again in the future. You. Again, the Thanks, book. Buddy. The book, folks, look for the book in September. Twisted Business: Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. JJ That's French, great. folks. Thanks, JJ.
2: Thank you, both. Take care, buddy.
1: Radio is a sound salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Ed Lynch and JJ French, my engineer, Brian Graves, and of course, you for joining us. See you next on August 15th. Welcome in the great photographer from Madison Square Garden, George Kalinski. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks.
2: The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily
1: represent those of the staff, management,